We are beginning the book of Matthew, first book in the New Testament. And so if you would turn in your Bibles, you can read along in the outline. A chance for people to turn there. 16th year here. Uh, this will be the third gospel. I've preached through Luke and John and now Matthew. And so if you hang out here for another five years or so, eventually we'll get to Mark. And then I guess five years after that, we'll start over again. But about every five years, we need to be reminded why we're here every Sunday morning. And uh, why we're here is Jesus. There's lots of other reasons we may be here, but ultimately we're here for Jesus. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. And pray for me because there's a lot of wonderful names here. Please listen carefully, Matthew 1, the first 17 verses, the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. That's the first woman mentioned. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, second woman. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, third woman, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, we've just covered a couple thousand years. We've gone from Abraham to David in the beginning of the monarchy. We've been through all the patriarchs. And then we begin, middle of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's the fourth woman, Bathsheba. She's not named, just called the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Love that name. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So now we've been through the reign of all the kings three, four hundred years. And we've gotten up to the exile. That's the deportation to Babylon. And in verse 12, we skip 70 years, and now we pick up with them returning. And after the deportation to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, another wonderful name. I know a number of you are expecting, got these great names here. Throw in the name consideration basket. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
The fifth woman mentioned, we won't be talking about her today, but next week, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We think we already know him. We think we already know the story. We think we already know the characters. And this book will reveal that we think too much and know too little. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus all over again. Help us to come to know him in an entirely new way. Help us to follow him as we never have before. And as always, for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I love a good story. Every time I read a good story, my heart thumps a little. I love mysteries and spy stories and techno thrillers. And I can't get enough of them. Joanne will tell you there's a big stack of them next to my bed and in the hall and in the basement. <laughs> and I especially love a good adventure story, tales filled with daring quests and dangerous journeys. These have always been my favorite, even as a child, when I was reading with a flashlight under the covers, don't tell my mom. Somewhere in the deepest part of my soul, I knew life had to be a great adventure or nothing at all. And the ancients used to refer to a human being as a homo viator. A homo viator, a person on the way. A man or a woman on a journey, a quest, an adventure. And later in life, when I first heard that Latin phrase, it just rang true. I knew we're all homo viators, people on the way of adventure. I can remember one summer around 8th or ninth grade, and I was working in a summer camp, and one of the other staff members there gave me a book, the Hobbit. And I can still remember Tolkien's first line, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Ten words into the book and I was hooked. Psychologists refer to this process as narrative transport, meaning the capacity for a good story to grab us and move us emotionally. What's a hobbit, I wondered. And why does he live in the ground? And will he leave his hole? And if so, what surprises, dangers, and delights will he encounter? And if you've read the book, you know that both dangers and delights abound. And as I entered Bilbo Baggins' journey, I wondered, what adventures will I have? And so with daring quests in my heart, I opened the New Testament, the grand story of Jesus, supposedly the greatest story ever told, and read a long and tedious list of Hebrew names. And I was deeply disappointed. Where was the adventure? Where's the danger and the delight? Where are the homo viatars, the people on great journeys in this story? And so the first time through, I just skipped it. And sad to say, I thought starting a book this way was an epic fail. 
or was it? More recently, as I'm preparing for this series on Matthew, I've come to realize that Matthew, ever so gently and slowly, so as not to startle us, is sweeping us into the greatest adventure tale ever told. And Matthew does it all, provoking and surprising us right into the story of Jesus. And we get a clue up front that we miss a little bit in English. The first two words, Biblios Genesios, are the Greek title for the book of Genesis. There's a reason we went from Genesis to Matthew with a little Colossians interlude so we could start Matthew at Advent. Hey, there really is a method behind the madness. So Genesis begins with four chapters that comprise the book of the generations of the world, creation and birth and human culture. And then Genesis 5 uh, teaches us, it begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And the New Testament is a new book that tells of the last Adam, as Jesus is referred to in 1 Corinthians. The Gospel of Matthew could easily be titled the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. It's a story of one who created the world, breathed the breath of life into Adam, was born into creation, and then redeemed it from Adam's fall. And you see, Matthew wants us to do a Genesis double take. First creation and now in Jesus, new creation. In other words, the original creation, damaged and flawed and broken, is being restored and transformed in and through Jesus Christ. And then Matthew quickly moves in one of these infamous biblical genealogies. We don't usually begin adventure tales with a family tree. But in the ancient world, the genealogy grounded people in history. It told you who you were and where you came from. And I was reminded of this. There's a story about a team from Wycliffe Bible Translators who completed the Gospel of Luke for the first time uh, in this language, except they left out the genealogy. And they couldn't get any interest. There was a minimal interest in the story from this people group they were trying to reach until they finally decided, believing that all Scripture is God-breathed, to translate the genealogy. It's a fairly simple matter of adapting the names into the sound system of that language. And the response when it was read to them was astounding. It was the key to the reception of the gospel in that culture. In a group that prized their ancestors and could name them back many generations, they realized at that point that Jesus was a real person, unlike the mythological figures of their own religion. And so Matthew starts this genealogy because right from the start, he wants you to know the identity of the king. The identity of the king, that's the first blank in your outline. It starts, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, when we have new member visits, one of the elders often ask something to the effect of, what is your favorite passage of Scripture? And no one ever answers Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. Ever. Instead, we come to this passage, we're more likely to ask, why does Matthew begin his account 
of the life of Christ with this boring genealogy. After all, most people, as I did originally, just skip this list or skim over it very quickly. Uh, But there's important things here for us to notice. And even more than that, I want to suggest to you that this is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, is one of the most important passages in the Bible because it's the thread that binds the Old and New Testament together. In fact, this text is essential to properly understand the meaning of the Old Testament. Matthew's genealogy is a summary of nearly the entire Old Testament, from Genesis 11 to Malachi 4. It captures the stories of the patriarchs, the Israelites, uh, slavery in Egypt, the exodus from uh, Egypt to the Promised Land. There's David and Solomon, then the divided kingdom, the destruction of Israel, the exile of Judah, and finally the return from exile. And Matthew carefully links the second part of the Bible with the first by citing 61 direct quotes from the Old Testament. Contrast Mark has 31, Luke 26, and John 16. And no, I didn't know that. I looked it up. Plus, there's just tons of other allusions from the Old Testament. I don't have a number because I didn't look it up. Matthew uses the phrase to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet ten times. He clearly identifies Jesus as the promised and long-awaited Messiah. The evidence presented is overwhelming. Jesus is being clearly presented as the fulfillment of all that the prophets of old were longing for. So the book of Matthew opens with the genealogy of the king. And these opening verses are important because Jewish people who make up Matthew's primary audience are very interested in a person's genealogy. The New Testament rests upon the accuracy of the genealogy because it establishes the fact that Jesus Christ is the line of Abraham and of the line of David. And both are significant. The line of Abraham places him in the nation and the line of David puts him on the throne. It's important to understand. Matthew's not writing a strict genealogy that includes everyone. He's tracing the royal line of David as it comes down towards Jesus. And in interpreting uh, this genealogy, uh, it's a better way to understand the relationships between the names uh, and the genealogy would be as X begat Y rather than X is the father of Y. In other words, it's not necessary for this genealogy that one person is biologically the father of the person in the next generation, but rather he was the ancestor of that person. For example, he could have been a grandfather or the great-grandfather. A lot of uh, time is skipped in here. But the ancestries all hold true. And Matthew's not trying to give us a literal one-to-one corresponding line of people who gave birth to other people Uh, until we get to Jesus. Uh, We'd probably have about 80 or 90 verses if he did that. Rather, he wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, the long-awaited Messiah. And he does it in three very specific ways. First, we see in verse 1 that Jesus is the son of Abraham. 
Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham that he'll be the father of many nations and everybody will be blessed through him. If you were here about three years ago, I think maybe two years ago, uh, we were in Genesis 12 and we read, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise is being upheld in Jesus. The genealogies are central to the nation of Israel. And through them it could be established whether a person had a legitimate claim to a particular line. For example, when Israel returned from the exile from captivity in Babylon, we find in the book of Ezra, it says, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So in Ezra's day, it was possible to check the register, the genealogies, <coughs> excuse me, of the tribe of Levi and remove those who made a false claim. And so every king has to have a royal lineage because his ancestry is the most important thing about it. Kings have to be in the royal line in order to qualify for the throne. And so Matthew begins with a family tree that traces the right of Jesus to reign. And this first sentence introduces us uh, not just to the genealogy, but to his gospel and, in fact, the whole uh, New Testament. And it answers the question, what is this book about? It's about Jesus. And who is this Jesus? And this tells us about the identity of Jesus. He is Jesus, who is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this genealogy that follows is proving the validity of what Matthew claims in the very first sentence. The second thing we see his Old Testament promises are fulfilled in Christ because he's the son of David. So first we had son of Abraham, and now we have son of David. And the story begins with this very familiar name, son of David. Everybody knew what was meant in Jesus' day, in the first century, when they heard the phrase, at least among the Jews, the son of David, the well-educated scribes and Pharisees, knew the Messiah by this name, as did the common people. And we'll see that later in Matthew. When we get to Matthew 12, we'll read, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And then even in Matthew 22, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. But the house of David at this time is buried in obscurity when Jesus is born. How can they imagine the Messiah coming out of David's family? Well, one, because it's repeatedly promised multiple times in the Old Testament. It starts with 2 Samuel chapter 7. In the story of David, and we read, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then we're reminded of this promise numerous times, particularly in the Psalms. One of those, Psalm 89 says, 
You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. But now Jesus is being born and David's been dead for almost a millennium. And so the Messiah comes like a root out of dry ground, which is exactly what Isaiah, the prophet, tells us, says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look to him and no beauty that we should desire him. And so then the branch, the righteous branch comes, who is a greater king and a greater Lord than David and his descendants ever were. And so Matthew is reminding us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God had given to David. That's a big promise that goes far beyond the little nation of Israel. It concerns the child who would be born, the son who would be given, the one whom we adore at Christmas. And here's the point. Jesus' birth is the climax of this entire story of God's relationship with Israel. Jesus is the end to which this entire biblical story is moving. And the point of the genealogy is establishing what Matthew declares in verse 1. Jesus' claim to David's throne. And for 600 years, the throne's been empty. But David's line is where the Messiah has to come from. Stories of David have been told for a thousand years and a thousand years and a thousand years. You go to Jerusalem today, they're still telling stories of David three millennia later. Imagine the impact of Matthew's declaration of Jesus' kingship there in first century Judaism. And so the third thing this genealogy makes clear, son of Abraham, son of David, but ultimately that this is the Christ and he's the center of history. In verse 1, Matthew suggests by his wording that Jesus is ushering in a new creation. This is a monumental pivot point, a turning point in history. And then in verse 17, at the end, we see things are working in a pattern. First, there were 14 generations of the patriarchs, Abraham to David, 14 generations of the kings from David to the exile, and finally 14 generations from the exile to Christ. All the major points of Israel's history have been a stepping stone on the way to Jesus. And because this is a somewhat selective genealogy, it becomes clear these names are chosen very carefully. And that's because Matthew wants to know the people of the king. That's the second blank there, the people of the king. Matthew ties much of his understanding of Jesus' kingship to the Old Testament, beginning with this genealogy. And there's 40 names here representing the patriarchs, the kings, and the captives. They tell the rich history of God's faithfulness to Old Testament Israel. In fact, this genealogy teaches us great truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to concentrate on those truths today uh, briefly, the genealogy teaches us a lot of other things, a ton of other things. I would love to go through the genealogy name by name and look at all the stories that are brought to mind uh, by the names that are recorded. And every time you glance at a name, there's a story. And, and you know, you see the name Jacob. And, oh, the stories that come to mind. Boaz and Obed and Solomon and some of the great kings, great stories come with them. 
And I'd love to tell those stories, but we can't this morning because there simply isn't time. You won't go home till about 4 o'clock. So I'm being kind this morning. Maybe you can study that uh, on your own. And if you study these names in detail, pretty soon you realize it's almost as if God has pulled together a rogues gallery. I've already said we don't know much about every single person on the list, but those that we do know something about, nearly all of them have some notable moral failure. Abraham lied about his wife Sarah. Isaac did the same thing. Jacob was a cheater. Judah was a fornicator. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a polygamist. Manasseh was the most evil king Israel ever had. And on and on and on we could go. The best of these men had flaws, and some of these men were so flawed, it's almost impossible to see any good points. And it's remarkable that people like this make up Jesus' family tree. There's a murderer on the list, a fornicator, an adulterer, a liar, a deceiver's on the list. Think about that. These are big sinners. And what does that tell us? Simply put, it shows us the grace of the king. The grace of the king. Third blank. That brings me to the third major observation here. This list includes women, as I pointed out when we went through it. That's unusual because the Jewish genealogy didn't normally include women. They just traced the family line from father to son. But Matthew includes five women in Jesus' family tree. We're going to look at four of them today. Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, and Bathsheba in verse 6. And they're all unlikely people. They all have uh, dubious reputations or dubious background. Tamar, the mother of uh, Perez, who in Genesis 38, as you all remember, at least those of you who were here last spring, played the role of a prostitute in order to have children after her husband died. Rahab, listed as the mother of Boaz, was a prostitute when she enters the biblical story in Joshua. She was also a foreigner. Then there's Ruth, who like Tamar was a widow, and who like Rahab was a foreigner. We find her in the book of Ruth when, when we discover she's a member of the Moabite nation and excluded from worship in Israel. And then Bathsheba's mentioned next. Actually, she's not mentioned. Matthew won't even write her name. He refers to her as the wife of Uriah. Which means that she may have been a foreigner because we know Uriah was a Hittite and she was an adulteress at the hands of King David. After which David had her husband killed so she was also a widow. And yet Matthew deliberately includes all of them in his genealogy. Prostitutes and adulteresses. And in this genealogy, Matthew is pointing us to Jesus' identity and his mission that he would bring hope to the widow, mercy to the sinner, and good news not just for the Jews, but for all mankind. In one way or another, all these women are outsiders. And Matthew is highlighting God's providence and using unlikely people for his purpose. This is a broken, deceitful, adulterous line of people that God is using to save the world. With such a list, Matthew gives us a clue about the kinds of people that the Messiah is coming to save. He's to be a savior for women and men who are both saints and sinners, Jews and Gentiles. You can look at the stories of these women and men and find some reflection of yourself. Little wonder then that Matthew's Christmas story features 
foreigners who come to worship Jesus and concludes with a great commission uh, given to uh, go and make disciples of all nations. And then finally at the end we get to verse 17. This one's a little different. It's a little tricky. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ. 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. And Matthew works very hard to make sure the list comes out just that way. We've noted already the genealogy is not complete. There's more generations listed in the genealogies in First and Second Kings than get mentioned by Matthew. But Matthew's not ignorant of this. He's doing it on purpose. He wants a genealogy that comes out 14, 14, 14. Why? Well, we have to go back a few years to when we went through the book of Revelation. And in particular, Revelation chapter 13, which we covered in March of 2010. And specifically, we go to Revelation 13, verse 18, which says, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, at that time, I told you the following. As for the number 666, what is the number used throughout the book of Revelation as a sign of completeness? The number 7, a symbol of completeness. The number 6 is not 7. It's incomplete. That means the dragon's incomplete, the beast from the sea is incomplete, the beast from the earth is incomplete. 666, a sign of being incomplete. As the teens would say, major fail. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 777, completely complete. False gods who wage war against the saints, 666, utterly incomplete. Now back to Matthew. In the genealogy, it comes out 14, 14, 14. Again, why? Because of Christ, who is the completer of the list. If you break down the 14s further, you get six sets of seven. And with six sets of seven, what comes next? The seventh seven. Jesus Christ, the perfection of perfections. The perfectly finished work of God. Christ is the end and the perfection of this list, this genealogy. He's the one the list points to, yearns for, culminates in. With him, this list is complete in a way that nothing has been completed since the foundation of the world. In Christ, the true Israel has come. The completion of all the genealogies has arrived in him. The Sabbath of Sabbaths, the seventh seven, has come. There's nothing more God needs to do. The fulfillment of all things has come in Jesus. And this is how Matthew begins his gospel, so you, know, you will know up front what it's all about. This is how Matthew begins his gospel, um, or rather will end his gospel as well, sending forth the disciples into an era of completion and fulfillment, bringing good news, good tidings, the gospel of a new creation and a perfected kingdom. <coughs> I want to end by looking at the genealogy again at this list and ask again the question why? 
Why does God include women, particularly women like that, on this list? <clears throat> but it's not just the women. Why does it include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David? They're sinners too. Why include people like that? Well, I think there's three answers there, and I've already told you what they are, so bear with me. One, he did it to send a message to self-righteous people. Matthew is written especially to the Jews. And many of their leaders, the Pharisees in particular, are self-righteous and judgmental towards others. They truly thought they deserved eternal life. What a shock to read this genealogy because it's filled with liars and murderers and thieves and adulterers and harlots. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a clean family tree. This list is a stinging rebuke to judgmental self-righteousness. You know what that means? It means Jesus was born into a sinful family. He comes from a long line of sinners. He's not one, which we'll really get to uh, next week, but all his descendants were, at least all his human descendants. Second reason we have this is so that God's grace can be displayed. If you come from a family like this, you can't boast of your heritage. Sure, your ancestors were rulers and, and kings, but they were great sinners, so it forces us to ask the question, can these people like this go to heaven? Can a prostitute go to heaven? Can an adulterer go to heaven? Can a murderer go to heaven? Can a liar go to heaven? You better say yes, because Rahab and David are both going to be in heaven, and Rahab is a prostitute and a liar, and David's an adulterer and a murderer. And when you read the stories of the women and men on this list, you're not supposed to focus on the sin, but on the grace of God. The hero here is God. His grace shines through all this you know, dark human sin as he's choosing flawed men and women and places them in Jesus' family tree. And then I think the third reason this is here is so that we would focus on Jesus. You know, a lot of people are intimidated by Jesus. They hook him up with a lot of religious paraphernalia. Big sanctuaries, stained glass, beautiful choir, pipe organs, formal prayers, all the rest. None of those things are wrong. But sometimes when you look at all the trappings, it can all be very intimidating. And to many people in the world today, Jesus just seems too good to be true. And the genealogy is here to let us know that he had a background a lot like yours and mine. He referred to it a lot. He called himself a friend of sinners. He said he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, and that he came to seek and save the lost. It's almost Christmas time. You know, some of you will be traveling home to spend Christmas time with your families. Some of your uh, families will be coming here to spend Christmas time uh, with us. And some of you are not excited about that. In fact, some of you don't feel very good about that at all. You'd rather not be going home this year, but you have to. It's family. And you have family members who embarrass you. Some of you are going to have to spend time with people who've hurt you deeply. Fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles and grandparents and distant relatives, and some of them you're glad to see. And truth be told, some of them you just as soon never see again. Some of them are incestuous. Some of them are adulterers. Some are liars. Some are filled with anger and bitterness. Some are evil in all sorts of bizarre ways. And you wish you didn't have to do what you've got to do. Go home and face those family members at Christmas. Jesus understands how you feel. 
He comes from a disreputable family. He even has a disreputable birth. His family tree is decorated with notable sinners. I mean, he's got the Hall of Fame of sinners, the Old Testament, in his uh, uh, family tree. He knows what it's like to have relatives who embarrass you. He knows all about a dysfunctional family situation. Now, I say this to encourage you. That no matter what your past looks like or what your present feels like, no matter where you've been or what you've done, God can give you a fresh start. He knows exactly what you go through at the holidays. So I hope you won't skip Matthew 1 in your Bible reading this Advent. This unlikely list of unlikely people may be one of the greatest chapters on grace in all of the Bible. In all these forgotten names from the past, God turns the spotlight on fallen men and women. And through their lives, we see what the grace of God can do. And good news, Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. We'll read that next week, Matthew 1.21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That means that Jesus didn't come to make you more religious. He came to save you from your sins. He didn't come to make you more pious. He came to save you from your sins. And he didn't come to make you more moral. He came to save you from your sins. He came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He came to save you from your sins. This passage teaches us that Jesus is the only Savior and the genealogy is designed to show us that the only Savior is Jesus. And he's the redeemer of all kinds of people, of women and men, of Jews and Gentiles, all kinds, all types. And in this genealogy are listed good men and bad men. Abraham is listed in this genealogy a good man, a man of faith, but with many failings. Ahaz is listed in this genealogy a bad man, virtually no redeeming qualities. Good women are listed in this genealogy. Ruth, women of doubtful background, are listed in this genealogy. Rahab. Good men who fail are listed in this genealogy. In fact, the very way in verse 6 that the greatest king of all of Israel's history, King David, is introduced, it says that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew's reminding us that everyone needs a Savior. Jew and Gentile, good and not so good. Righteous and wicked. Even the righteous in this genealogy need redemption. And Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of all types and all kinds of men and women. And God chose sinful, broken, unlikely people. Who else does he have? To come near to Jesus is to come near to a perfect love and a perfect power to restore all things. Jesus will take all the broken stuff in your life, in the whole world, and restore them. And all your sad stories will come untrue. So don't let Matthew's dull-sounding introduction fool you. This is adventure storytelling at its very best. It's a true story that reads like fiction. And what adventures, dangers, and delights will Jesus encounter? And if we follow him, what adventures will come our way? Welcome to the Gospel of Matthew. You're in for the ride of your life. You need to pray.